welcome, brothers and sisters. Uh, a big welcome uh, to anyone who is new with us for the first time or just visiting. Um, a big welcome. It is our prayer here at Calvary that uh, you would be encouraged uh, by fellowship, by worship, by the word, that you'd be uh, challenged, you'd be inspired, um, and that Jesus would become bigger in your hearts and minds. Well, uh, we're going to be in uh, Psalm 3 today, so if you, if you want to open up to the book of Psalms. Now, God's got a sense of humour. Um, yesterday morning, uh, I was running with a bunch of guys. I do that most Saturday mornings. And uh, one of the guys I was running with, uh, Phil Beck, he's the, the pastor at ABC. He goes, oh, Russie, as we're running along, he says, Russie, are you preaching tomorrow? That was yesterday. He goes, oh, no, 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 I haven't, I haven't preached for a while. I don't think I'll be on for a while. <laughs> And then I got a call, uh, lunchtime, from Chris. Yeah, so Donna's been sick for uh, a week or so, and Chris has come down with it. And uh, as we've been hearing, there's lots of others in our congregation that are, are sick and struggling. So um, please uh, remember them in prayer. Let's uh, please bow your hearts with me. Father, we again lift up uh, our brothers and sisters in this congregation who are struggling with ill health and, and struggling with so many other issues, Lord. You, you know their situations, you know their, their trials, their griefs, um, the things that they're wrestling with. Lord, we pray that you would uphold them, that you would strengthen them, that you would wrap your arms around them, that you'd be a shield around them. Lord, and we pray this morning that uh, as we uh, open your word, that uh, Holy Spirit, you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand, and that you would move us from where we are, and that uh, you would become bigger in our hearts, Lord Jesus, that we would have a, a bigger vision, a weightier vision of, of how valuable you are and what a treasure you are. So, so help us in this, in this we pray, Lord. Uh, we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Well, if uh, you've probably heard the, uh, the question before, you know, if you're on a desert island, you're going to a desert island, what book would you have? And, you know, most of us, I hope, would say we'd have the Bible if it was one book. But uh, if you could have five books only of the Bible, you know, you could only take five, you're going to your desert island, you're going to be alone, and you could only have five books. Which of those five books out of the Bible would it be? And, um, and Why? Why would you take those five books? Um, I'm going to argue this morning that the book of Psalms would have to be in that top five list that you would take with you. So we're going to look at Psalm 3, but we can't just jump straight into Psalm 3 because there's two Psalms before it and they give the context, um, not only of Psalm 3, but the whole book of Psalms. So as we know, the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, and it's been written by many, many different people um, across a thousand years. Now, that's pretty amazing when you think about it. You know, Australia, the European settlement, you know, started back in 1788. Where, so if you subtract the, you know, two, that from 2019, that's only 231 years. So our European Australian history is uh, small potatoes when it comes to a thousand years in which the book of Psalms was written across. Now, it was compiled in different stages. You know, over that period, different Psalms were put to, you know, grouped together. Um, but the final form that we have now in these 150 Psalms um, 
was by an unknown editor, we, or editors, we don't know, and it was shortly after the Babylonian exile. So Israel had been smashed. Their lives were raw and hurting. And so this final form that we have before us is actually a response by Israel to the losses of their king, their temple, and their land. They'd lost those three things that made Israel Israel, their king, their temple, and their land. And there's four, there's lots of themes in in the book of Psalms, but there's four key themes in this book. And the the first one is the divine divine wisdom of living God's word, his his Torah. That's, That's the first one, living by his word. The second one is that the God of the Bible is a refuge. We were singing that. Uh, in a number of those songs there. God is a refuge for his people and a judge for the wicked. That's the second one. And the third one uh, uses this uh, Hebrew word chesed. Okay, I get the chesed. And it's a very difficult word to translate because it actually encapsulates lots of things. And we could translate it as God's grace or his loyal love. Uh, his steadfast kindness, his covenant love, all these things are wrapped up in this, this, word, this word chesed. And so the third theme is that Yahweh, God's chesed, is to his elect people in spite of their sin and the ongoing presence of the wicked. That's us today. It was us, them back then, but it's us today that God's Chesed, his grace, his loyal love, his covenant love, his steadfast kindness is to his elect people. If we're born again, we're his elect people in spite of what is going on around us and the struggles that we are having. And the fourth theme is the future hope of the all-conquering Davidic king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Okay? Right. Psalm... 150 of them, and they're in five books. And I don't know whether you've pondered this before, but this is, uh, has obvious connotations to the Torah, the, the, the Pentateuch, the five books that make up the beginning of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the editors, when they put it together and they grouped them in the, these five books, they're making a statement. These five books are on par and parallel the first five books of the Bible. Now, Psalm 1 and 2, these are an introduction to the book of Psalms, and it prepares you for the rest of the book of Psalms. All right? um, I've heard it said that Psalm 1 and 2 are like the two twin pillars that you would walk through to go into the temple, uh, the Jewish temple. Um, they were called Boaz and Jachin. Uh, these two temples, when you, sorry, these two pillars that you walk through into the temple. And Psalm 1 and 2 are like that. They're like these two pillars that you have to walk between to get into the temple. And Psalm 1 and 2, even though they're two separate psalms, they're actually a, a single unit. They're joined together. And a clue that, that we have that is if you have a look at Psalm 1 1, the very first verse, it says, Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man, the person. And then look at Verse 2, 12, the very last verse, part of that verse says, Blessed are all who take refuge in here. And what we have is what's called an inclusio. It's like a bookend, and it actually holds these two psalms together. Blessed is the man 
blessed are all who, so you've got this bookend, this inclusio that hold these two together. So if you don't get your head around Psalm 1 and 2, if you don't understand what they're talking about and the themes that are in it, you won't actually understand the book of Psalms, the whole book, the 150 of them. So Psalm 1 and 2 really shows you what the book of Psalms is all about. Okay? Um, And you won't understand the rest of the Psalms unless you understand what's going on in the Psalm 1 and 2. So in a sense, Psalm 1 and 2 are like the book of Psalms in a nutshell. So in a sense, you can just read Psalm 1 and 2 and go, well, I've got it. This is what the book of Psalms is about. However, the rest of the Psalms flesh out and deepen and broaden and strengthen what is said in Psalm 1 and 2. Those four themes just keep getting hammered and hammered and hammered and out and repeated in different ways, from different perspectives so that we understand this. So, the first key theme that I said was living by God's divine uh, wisdom. Look at uh, verse 1. Uh, and two in Psalm 1. I I know we said we're going to be in Psalm 3, but we're just getting a little bit of a context to move in. So blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his or her delight is in the law, the word of the Lord. And on his law, his word, he meditates day and night. Okay, so by living by God's word, that is wisdom. Then the second theme, key theme, was God is a refuge. Look at verse 2.12. We just read that one previously. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So God is our refuge. And the other part of that key theme is that God will judge the wicked. Look at verse 1, verses 5 to 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then again in Psalm 2, verses 4 to 5, this is God responding to the wicked. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So God is a refuge, judgment to the wicked. And then the third one was... Yahweh, God's chesed, okay, his, his covenant love, his grace. It's in verse 1-3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruits in season and leaf does not wither. In all that he does prospers. Can you hear that? The blessing of living by God's word. And then in verse 2-8, it says, Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of your earth, your possessions. So that's the promise to the Messiah that God's covenant people will live in his covenant blessing. And then the last one, the future hope of the conquering messianic king. Look at uh, Psalm 2, verses 6 to 9. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. Sorry, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your inheritance, uh, your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. 
So Psalm 1 and 2 give us the picture of uh, life on earth. Have a look at the first two, uh, sorry, first three verses of, chap- of Psalm 2. Let's just read them through. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves uh, and the new rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. So here you've got this picture of humankind's mutiny. I don't know whether you've thought of it that way before, but the the whole human race, every single person has been part of this mutiny and at war against God. We are before Christ, before we're born again of his spirit, before we're washed clean by his blood, we are at enmity with God. Okay, we are at war. The nations rage, the kings of the earth... Now, when we read the kings of the earth, we sort of think, oh, you know, presidents and prime ministers and kings and queens and so on. But if you think about it, the kings of the earth, from a whole planetary point of view, who who are the kings of the earth? The kings of the earth are the human race. We've been created in God's image. Okay, We have a very special privilege of bearing his image. And we were created to rule and, sir, and to uh, be stewards of God's earth. All right, so the, the kings of the earth, okay, uh, raging against God. And you might say, well, it doesn't look like my neighbour next door is raging against God. They're pretty nice people. Well, I would say to that, bring up Jesus, bring up sin, bring up judgment, bring up hell, and you will see the rage flare up. Okay, people will get angry when you start talking about things like that. Um, and what's, when you start scratching below the surface, the, the mutiny against the King of Kings rises up. All right, so Psalm 1 and 2 sums up human history. It sums up the future. It talks about this messianic king coming. And we, we as New Testament believers, already have insights to that being post the cross We know he has come and he is going to return. He has promised that. And so everyone has this choice. Pick your side. And we know that the king wins. Jesus will rule. It's stated there in the end of Psalm 2 there. And we know from Revelation. The book of Revelation tells us very, very clearly Jesus wins. So when you get to the end of the book of Psalms, the last five Psalms there, Psalm 146 to 150, these are called the Hallelujah Psalms. And it's this climactic conclusion of just worship and worship and worship and praise to the king because it's coming to an end. It's like this climactic conclusion. So that's what we have at the end of the book of Psalms. So we are very fortunate as New Testament believers in having this book, we have the big picture, all right? We, as, you know, we get the seagulls, uh, birds, seagulls view of you know, what's come, the book of Genesis, the book of Revelation. We see that. We look, we look above that and we see that and we go, and so everything should be sweet, right? We know what happened. We know what Jesus has done. We know he's coming back. We know he's going to win. So everything should be sweet. That's Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. There's the picture. There's the whole story. We can see it. And so life should be good. 
And then comes Psalm 3. It's a very deliberate choice. The people that edited the book of Psalms put it all together. They very deliberately put Psalm 1 and 2 right at the beginning. And then they put Psalm 3 there. It's the first one that actually says it's a psalm. And it's the first one that David wrote. So it's a very deliberate choice that Psalm 3 comes after this. So we have this beautiful big picture. Everything should be sweet. We know what's happened. We know what's going to happen. And then you hear, Oh Lord, the cry, Oh Lord. Okay, and we can fill in our struggle. We can fill in our complaint. It's just like Peter. If you, that, Oh Lord, you remember when Peter steps out on the water, when Jesus invites him out onto the water, and he, he walks on the water and then he starts sinking, and it's, Oh Lord, he's crying out. That's the cry, Oh Lord. And we all have those oh lord moments and if we haven't got them at the at, right at the moment it will come <laughs> sooner or later it will come oh lord save me oh lord rescue me oh lord help oh lord i don't know what to do so psalm 3 is the psalm for the daily life in the trenches we've got psalm 1 and 2 it gives us the big picture the big seagull bird's eye view we know what's happened what's going to happen but it's when we're that's that's the 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 mountaintop view but we don't live on the mountaintop all the time do we we live in the valley in the trenches when the bullets are whizzing by and it's oh lord you know whether it's your wife your husband your kids your job your relatives whatever it is that you're struggling with, your addictions, whatever it is you're struggling with, this psalm is for us when we're battling in the trenches, in the valley, and life is tough. We're sick. We've got family members who are sick. Psalm 3 is for that time. So into Psalm 3, we had the, the intro. Psalm 3 describes a very specific time in David's uh, life when it's very dangerous and it's the morning. It's the morning in the, the time when David is struggling with this very particular issue. His own son, one of his own family members. Okay? This is not some enemy off from a different country. It's in his own household. Okay? His own son, Absalom, has led a rebellion against him. His household... So David's household, his kingdom, has just been turned on its head. Okay? He's in great danger and he's in the imminent threat of death. Okay? Absalom and others want him dead. This is all told in Samuel, 2 Samuel 15 and 16. You can have a read through that later on if you want to. Now think about it. Put yourself in David's shoes. This must have been probably the most agonising struggle that he had because it's in-house, it's his own family that's doing this to him. And to make matters worse, it's actually a result of his own sin. It's a result of his own selfish, sinful choices. You trace this back, where did this, what he's going through, where did it come from? Well, he had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. He then had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, murdered. Uh, later down the track, um, Amnon, rape, Amnon, David's son, rapes David's daughter, and he doesn't handle that at all well. 
Absalom is fuming and thinking David hasn't handled this properly, so I'm going to make things right. And Amnon, ha- sorry, Absalom has Amnon murdered. All right, talk about skeletons in the closet. You know, <laughs> this is what is going on in David's life, and now it's all come to a head. Amnon is going, David, you're not fit to be king, and I'm going to take your place. I, your son, are going to have you killed and moved out of the way so that I can rule. Put yourself in David's position. It doesn't really get any worse than that if you put yourself in his position. But really, we can put ourselves in David's shoes in many respects because David is just like us. He is stuffed up big time. And how many times have we stuffed up big time? Before we were Christians and even as we're Christians, we stuff up big time. Now, we know that David's sin was pardoned. He was forgiven. And we know that when we stuff up big time, God's forgiveness is there for us. However, we may have to bear the consequences of those sins. So David knows his sin is forgiven, but he's bearing the consequences. And as he bears the consequences, what is the cry from his heart? Oh, Lord. That's his cry. Oh, Lord. And he's probably living in regret. If only I had done things differently. And, you know, we all have regrets. We look back at our life before becoming Christians, BC. We have lots of regrets. There's so much stuff we wish we hadn't done. And as Christians, as born-again, blood-washed believers, there's things we've done that we wish we had done differently. We know we're forgiven. We know we're washed clean but we still have to bear the consequences sometimes. Now, this psalm is a military, it uses military language. And I'm going to argue that this psalm really very clearly says we're in a war here. Okay? We're not in civilian times. This is a war. And let's have a look at it. Verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? All right? He's saying we've got enemies. Who are our enemies? Well, there's the demonic world. You know, we, we can't see it. We get little snippets of it, whiffs of it here and there. But the demonic realm, there must be, you know, thousands of demonic angels that would just love to shred us to pieces. They would delight in shredding us to pieces and God's hand of grace protects us from that every single day. What's our other enemy? Number two, the world, the mutinous humanity that is at war with Christ. All right? Number three, what's our other enemy? Well, it's us. It's our own sinful nature. You know, we are often our, uh, our own worst enemies. As David is seeing here, he's his own worst enemy. And, you know, for all of us, we don't need to look too far back in our history to see that we are our own Worst enemies, our sinful desires, our sinful suicidal desires, you know, get the better of us sometimes. And sometimes we just willingly choose to do the wrong thing and we pay the price for that. So we're surrounded by enemies literally from within and from without. Verse 2, it says, Many are rising up against me. Many. Do you see that? Many. Twice. Okay, are rising up. And the second one says, Are saying. So there's words. Things are being said against David, and we've all had it. We've had those arrows 
that have hit us from people that, you know, often close to us, the arrows that have pierced our hearts, and we've fired them off as well, haven't we? You know, you think back to some of the, the horrendous things that we've said to, to people, we fire them off as well. So many are rising up, many are saying. Now David and Jesus faced all of this. All right, um, He's saying my soul is, is in spiritual danger, not just physical. And it goes on and says there is no salvation for him in God. Okay, now Jesus experienced this on the cross. Remember the insults and that that was hurled out upon Jesus, those arrows in his most vulnerable and his most hurting and agonising moments, he's got people around him firing the arrows at him, you know, twisting the sword in the wound, all right? And David has got it as well. He's getting it from Absalom and from others. And remember, Shimei, when they were leaving uh, Jerusalem and heading out, um, had Shimei, you know, firing off all these insults to him. And basically they're saying, David, you don't deserve to be saved. Look what you did with Bathsheba. Look what you did to Uriah. Look how you handled Amnon. Look how you handled Tamar. Look how you handled Absalom. And they're all these accusations. And a lot of them are true. And that makes it even worse. And often we get these accusations. Often they're false, but sometimes they're true. All right. And so the point is, what they are saying to David, you don't deserve to be saved, we're in David's shoes. We don't deserve to be saved either. Even if we've been following Christ faithfully for decades, it's still the point we don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve to be saved. Okay? And if we don't believe this, then I don't think we actually understand the cross and I don't think we're actually under, we're ready to face God if we don't understand God's amazing grace to us. What comes next after verse 2? Selah. There's this abrupt change. There's this pause. There's this stop. And it's there for a reason. The psalmist David who wrote this, he's saying stop. Because he, you hear the cry from his heart and he's heard all the accusation and he's hurting but he's stopping and he's, he's, seeing, and he's, he's now taking his gaze from all those arrows and accusations and he's now seeing the big picture. And this is the key for us. This is, I suppose, one of the, the application points from this psalm is, you know, when you're lying in bed at night and all this stuff is racing through your mind, what she said and what he said and what they did, and it's... And, you, you know, the blood pressure's going up and it's midnight and you're still not getting to sleep, this is where you've got to stop, okay, and fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. And as David does here, he cries out and he starts focusing on who God is, all right? And he starts focusing on the truth of who Jesus is. And what does he say? Verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Now, I don't know whether you've picked up a shield before, but when you pick one up, it protects you from the front, but from the side and the rear, you are an open target. All right? 
God is not a shield like that. He is a shield that encompasses from all the directions. So we don't have any side that is uncovered. So God has our front, he has our sides, he has our back. He is a shield 360 degrees around us. And this cry harks from Genesis 15. So just keep your finger there in Psalm 3 and just spin back to Genesis chapter 15. And this is God speaking to Abraham when he's, um, he's, make, he's making these promises and this covenant with Abraham. And what does he say? Verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. So David, I'm sure, is you know, aware of this promise to Abraham and he is, as the seed of Abraham, he's clinging hold of that. All right, so in verse 3 there it says, But you, O Lord, are a shield around me. And he says, My glory. Now, we've really got to get our head around these two, ver- these two words, my glory. You know, there is no greater privilege, there is no greater honour than God, than Jesus being our glory. All right? This is what we have to get our head around each morning, okay, that we... See that God is our glory. Because whatever, what is everyone else out there in the world doing? They're chasing their own glory. But our glory is God's glory. We are in Christ. It is his glory that is, should be front and centre. So there is no greater privilege, okay? No greater privilege than, say, living to 100 or getting married or being a parent or getting the, the dream job of, you know, that you want or owning a house, there is no greater privilege than God being our glory. And we will spend the rest of eternity just getting our heads and our hearts around that amazing privilege. Eternity will not be long enough for us to praise him for allowing us to see his glory and to experience it and have the honour and the privilege of worshipping him for his glory. That's what's got to get us out of bed in the morning. That's what we've got to get our heads around. And then the other part of verse 3, and the lifter of my head. Now, it's not a lifting of head out of pride, but of confidence. So if we are born again of Christ, he has lifted our heads okay, to see his grace and his goodness in the gospel. He has lifted our downcast, guilt-ridden eyes to lift our gaze to look into his eyes. I remember seeing a, um, a teacher one day in primary school and this, this student had done the wrong thing and the, the teacher was a little boy and the, the uh, teacher was lifting the boy's chin to make eye contact so the teacher could look straight into the eyes. And that is us. He's lifted our eyes lifted our head so that we can look into his eyes knowing that we're guilty but that we are forgiven and we're washed clean we're made right we've been ransomed and redeemed now if there there is a verse to memorize in the bible this is the one 
Okay, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And if you memorise, this is a challenge, you memorise this verse and before you get up, or when you get up in the morning, before you've had your coffee, before you've had breakfast, before you walk out the door to school or to work, run this verse through your head and allow your heart to meditate upon it. All right, and the truth of it will blow your mind. He is a shield around me. What are, what are we walking into in our jobs, our schools, whatever the situation? What are we walking into? The arrows are being fired from all directions, but he is a shield around us. He is our glory. He is our glory. And he's the one that lifts our head and allows us to look into his eyes. There is no greater privilege. There is no greater treasure. I would throw out the challenge to memorise all three of these psalms, one, two and three, and as you meditate upon them, as you memorise them and they, they transform your heart, you see the big picture and in the, the midst of the, the trench warfare that we go through on a daily basis, it will help us to see a right. So... The reality of these verses, if, if, if we don't grip the reality of this Psalm 3, verse 3, then we will be like the ten spies that went into the promised land in Numbers 13 and we'll look at the giants and we'll go, no, they're too big, there is no hope. But if you look at Psalm 3, verse 3, and you meditate upon it and the truth of it grips you, you go, yeah, they are giants out there and yeah, they're big. And there's lots of them, but they're way smaller than God because he is way, way bigger. Psalm 3, verse 3. I would have to say it's my favourite verse in the Bible and it's one that I meditate upon before I have my coffee, before I have breakfast, before I walk out the door. I just run it through my head and I pray for it pray from it and I thank God from it. I go, God, you are my shield. Thank you. You protect me from all these things that are going outside. You protect me from making such stupid, self-centred, suicidal um, decisions. All right? God, you are my glory. It doesn't get any better than that. If I die today, you know, the bus takes me out, the coronavirus, whatever, I am heading to glory. It doesn't get any better. The worst thing that can happen is I die and that is the door into your glory. Amen. Hallelujah. And while I'm here, you've lifted my gaze. You've lifted my head to look into your eyes and you've forgiven me. You've forgiven me. Verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Do you hear that? I cried aloud. You know, I don't think we do enough of that. It's when we cry out to God aloud, you know, through the tears that he answers us. I, I, I speak from personal experience. It's, it's the, we see Jesus most closely through the lens of tears. When we're crying out over our own sin, over what's going on around us, the world, whatever it is that we're crying, crying about and we're crying to God, he meets us. He meets us there. We have to cry aloud to the Lord. And what does it say? He answered from his holy hill. Now think about this. Think about the context of this 
this psalm. Where is David? He's left the holy hill. He's left Jerusalem. He's left the temple. The ark came out with him, but he sent it back. The, pre, you know, the priests are in Jerusalem. So David didn't have the ark of God, but he had the God of the ark. All right? Now, we're in David's shoes, but as New Testament believers, we are now the temple. Scripture clearly teaches that. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells within us if we are born again of his Spirit. And not only that, we are now the priests. You know, the Reformation really brought to the forefront that God's people is are a royal priesthood. We know lo- we're not Catholics. We don't have to go to a priest to confess. We go straight to Jesus. We go straight to Jesus. We are the priests. We have the Spirit dwelling within us. And mate, it may possibly be, I throw this out there, we may not have heard from God lately because we haven't cried out to him lately. I know my heart is getting hard if I haven't cried out to him for a while. We have direct access to God and he, he, he petitions us to cry out to him. Verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Now, if you note, in, uh, just over in verse, uh, sorry, in Psalm 4, verse 8, I lie down and uh, I, I, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is one verse that I try to run through my head just before I nod off to sleep at night. I lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And particularly when you're stressing out over whatever the situation is and stuff's running 100 miles through your head and you can't get to sleep. Lay hold of this verse, run it through your head, meditate upon it, and the stress will vanish and you'll get to sleep. Now verse 5, getting back to it in in Psalm 3, this morning was probably the most important morning for David. Okay, And the morning, the mornings were most important for David. Look at Psalm 5, be probably just over the page there. Psalm 5, verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Okay, that's, that's David's heart. And then just keep your finger there and jump to Psalm 59. Psalm 59. And verse 16. Psalm 59, verse 16. Whoop, I've jumped to Isaiah. That's a big jump. Psalm 59 and verse 16. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress, a refuge, in the day of my distress. So here David, he, he got with God in the morning. That's the template for us. You know, what, do we, what do we put first in, in the morning? Verse 6. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people 
who have set themselves up against me. So David here has confidence in the protection of God. Okay, uh, he's, he's confident in that. And his confidence does not depend upon his circumstance. His confidence is resting in God, not what is going on around him. This might seem like an unrelated verse, but just turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Because this verse has always stood out to me. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 18. It says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Who wrote that? Paul wrote it. What happened to Paul? Lost his head. And that verse still holds true. People might go, oh, but God didn't rescue him. He lost his head. He got executed. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Came true. Came true. And it will for us. Back to Psalm 3. The goal is Jesus. And again, like I said before, death is the door for all of us. So who cares if we get coronavirus? <laughs> death is the door to glory. Verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. So again, this is a petition. He's crying out to God, arise, arise. And it's interesting how it talks about the, the, the teeth. Okay, you know, animals of attack, teeth is their chief weapon. You know, they latch hold of things and kill things with their teeth. And, you know, we've, we've experienced that and we've probably done it before. You know, we've acted and we've experienced people acting like wild animals biting us and trying to shred us. Turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. It's Jesus on the cross. Psalm 22, verses 12 and 13. It says, Many bulls encompass me. You know, so these big, strong animals. Many bulls encompass me. Compass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their, their wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So it's like this is what Jesus experienced on the cross the teeth of these wild animals, these people slinging these insults at him. All right. And so back in Psalm 3, when, when David is saying, Arise, O Lord, save me. Strike all your enemies on the cheek. Break the teeth of the wicked. It's a cry for justice. It's a cry for the teeth to be broken so they'll let hold of us. Verse 8, the last verse, says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Now, this salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, it... it uh, 
It's, it's re, uh, repeated in Jonah. We won't go there, but in Jonah 2.9, it says salvation is from the Lord. Read through Ephesians chapter 2, you know, verses 1 to 9, makes it very clear. Salvation is from the Lord. It's grace. It's all of grace. No one can boast. Even the faith that you have, it's from God. None of us can boast. It's from the Lord from beginning to end. It is God who saves us. And in Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10, again, it says, Salvation is from the Lord. So we rest in his grace. We rest in his grace. It is he that saves us because we can't save ourselves. And then the very last uh, part of verse 8 there, it says, Your blessing be on your people. David is crying out, not for himself. His eyes are fixed on his people. All right, your blessing be on your people. It's intercession. It's what we do here on Sunday night. There's a saying that I came across and it stuck with me because it's often convicted me. It says, you have grown up when you can take good care of others. You have grown up when you can take good care of others. There's lots of times I look at it and I think, I haven't grown up. <laughs> I haven't grown up. I'm looking after number one. I think it's a good idea for us to look at our prayer life and analyse and critique what do we spend our time praying about? Is it just about me all the time? God, give me this. God, do this for me. God, yes, we have to pray for ourselves, but we should be praying for others, interceding for others. And think about it. All of us wrestle with different temptations, different addictions, different trials, and you know the struggles. You know the struggles that you're going through. You can pray for someone going through exactly the same struggle better than anyone else because you know what you're going through. So whatever it is that you're struggling with, whatever addiction you're wrestling with and have wrestled with for who knows how long, you pray. When you are struggling and the, try, the temptation is in your face, don't just pray for yourself. Pray for all the thousands, probably millions of other brothers and sisters who are wrestling with exactly the same stuff. You pray for them. And I'll tell you what, when the temptation comes, it becomes a springboard to interceding for your brothers and sisters who are suffering in the same way, and then it becomes a springboard to worship. So what Satan tries to, to bring you down with ends up being worship to God. So you throw it back in Satan's face, and God is glorified. God is glorified in it intercede for others and that's become probably in the last year or two that's been probably become the most powerful thing in my prayer life when temptations come I pray and it lifts you out of yourself because often we just oh God help me help me help me you pray for others and you are lifted out of your struggle and you know your compassion goes out for all your other brothers and sisters struggling with exactly the same thing and you get lifted out of it and then you, you just can't, you, you worship God. And it's like, it's good, it's good. I encourage you to do that, I encourage you to do that. I want to, in talking about that, um, come on, I just want to read a quote that I came across the other day about prayer. It ties in with crying out, as, as David is saying here. This is from John Piper. He says, we're in a war worse than World War II. 
Now, we might look around and go, well, the bullets and the bombs aren't flying. It's not World War II. Yeah, physically, but spiritually, it is worse. The casualties don't just lose one life. They lose everything forever. If we believe that life is war, which is what this psalm is telling us, if we believed that life is war, how different would things be? Now, the connection between prayer and war is not left to our guesswork. Ephesians 6.17, it doesn't take any exegetical ability. You, can, you, know, you don't have to be theologically smart to work this one out. That prayer is the power that wields the weapon. Prayer is not a civilian device. The number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is because they try to take a wartime walkie-talkie and turn it into a domestic intercom by which they ring up the maid to bring another pillow. <laughs> Does that describe our prayer lives? You know, it's God, give me this. Oh, God, make this more comfortable for me. You know, God, bring me another pillow. Like, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. We're in the trenches. The bullets are whizzing around us. We can see what's going on in our lives and the lives of other people and in their marriages and all the mess and brokenness in our lives. And we're crying out to God as David cried out, Oh Lord, that's what prayer is for. And he, he, he gives us a little rhyme. He says, Until we believe that life is war, we will not know what prayer is for. Repeat that. Until we believe that life is war, we will not know what prayer is for. So this psalm, it's a war cry, and it's a, it's a proclamation of the truth of what God has done and is doing. It's the truth of what will happen in the future. So just to conclude, Psalm 1 and 2 gives us the big picture of what is happening in our world. All right, we, we can see the big picture, the big bird's eye view, and but then life happens. Then life happens, and the bullets start whizzing around us. We're in the daily grind, the daily battle. The arrows are coming from our own family, from relatives, from workmates, from wherever else, social media, you know, Channel 2, whatever. Um, it's coming at us, and this is what Psalm 3 is for. It's for when we lose the big picture and we cry out to God. And once we cry out to God, he lifts us up, he lifts our heads. We see that he's our glory. He's the shield around us. And we push on to the day he takes us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we praise you and we 